Welcome. I'm your host, Mark Graziano, and this is the GRC Podcast. This is your source for discussions about governance, risk, compliance, and more. I partner with incredible security champions to challenge the GRC industry stereotype and to outline security career and program strategies that you can implement today. Joining me today is Dustin Bailey. Dustin is a former colleague of mine, and he's the former security lead at Twilio Segment. I really wanted Dustin to be one of the first people that I interviewed for this podcast because he's one of the first people who actually challenged my opinions of how GRC should be practiced. Dustin is phenomenal at being able to ruthlessly prioritize, really zero in on what aspects of a GRC program produce the most value for a company or reduce the most risk while also taking into account the different limitations that they might be experiencing, whether it's headcount or time. And he's also a phenomenal business partner. Um, One of the things that I think that I've seen uh, as a GRC failure is that it becomes this isolated function. And Dustin did a great job working with everybody across the business, understanding the product, understanding the business, understanding the different cultures of the people that he was working with to make sure he solicited the feedback. So by the time he had to implement security controls, they had already been socialized and the people that were most impacted by them had a hand in actually designing them. The lessons Dustin was able to share with me have made me a better security practitioner, and I think the lessons that he's learned deserve to be told to a broader audience as well. So in this interview, I'm really excited. I hope you all see why Dustin has made such an impact on me personally and professionally. So Dustin, welcome to the GRC podcast. Thanks for joining us. As I mentioned in the introduction, you're the former security lead for uh, for Twilio segment. You've since moved on, so I'm happy to have dragged you back into the GRC space. Well, thanks, Mark. I'm happy to be with you. This is uh, exciting. Excited to have. Excited for you to be doing a GRC podcast. I think this uh, and and maybe a different a different take on things. I think this is a nice fresh uh, fresh approach to uh, GRC. I love it. So we're about two sentences in, and I'm already crushing it as a host. I wasn't expecting a compliment uh, about me doing a GRC podcast, but what I should have told Dustin was, thank you for opening my eyes to some of the things that I was doing wrong and for making me a better professional and for inspiring me enough to work on this outside of my nine to five. But instead, I went with this. Yeah, and usually I would have you state kind of just like your your general background so everybody could understand what the authority figure uh, that you are is. Um, But I think in this case, that's going to be the entirety of the episode. So if we could just kind of start just right away. Why GRC? How did you choose GRC? How did you get into this space? Man, uh, GRC chose me, I suppose. Um, I I honestly had no idea that this space existed. I didn't know it was a thing. Um, it was, I guess, my junior year of college at uh, the University of Tennessee. And um, I ended up in a, it was an information management class, uh, which was like, it was a thing that every business major had to take. And it was like access databases. And I have a somewhat technical background, had done IT stuff all through high school and everything. And so the class was a breeze for me and it was tough for everyone else. And it just so happened that the TA that was teaching that class, she had, um, she was a accounting graduate student and had spent the previous summer interning at Deloitte in Deloitte's um, audit practice, but specifically what they called um, advisory or enterprise risk services, which was doing the IT side of SOX audits. And I really didn't know that it existed. To be quite honest with you, as a finance major, I wasn't, I knew I'd heard of Deloitte before, but it was kind of like, oh, what's, what's this thing? Like the big four didn't really mean as much to me as my um, accounting counterparts. Uh, but she came to me and was like, hey, you know, you're really good at this stuff. I think you'd be, I think you'd be good for like what we do at, at Deloitte. Would you be interested in like talking to some people about it? And I'm like, yeah, sure thing. And so one thing led to another and I end up interviewing 
and uh, ended up interning with Deloitte in the summer between my junior and senior years of college and uh, got a full-time offer at the the end of that. So went spent my senior year knowing that I was going to go work for Deloitte and that's what kind of got me into it. So I graduated the next year, um, graduated May, went to work in September and started doing uh, the, again, the IT side of, uh, of SOX audit. So testing uh, mainly what we called the uh, GCCs, the general computer controls, feels like a throwback to say, or uh, general IT controls, things like that. So it was a lot of uh, IT con- controls testing. And so it was a, it was a pretty good um, marriage of like my business education, but then my IT background. I, I understood a lot more of the technical aspects of what we were doing than a lot of folks who may have been pure accounting majors or had never had uh, experience to this. And so that, that kind of gave me an, an edge. I was able to sit down in meetings with clients and, and understand the environment a lot uh, faster, especially Active Directory. I'd been um, involved with managing... Um, the or I, I had I had helped the school system. I'd worked for the school system here in my hometown um, for five summers, and so it was an Active Directory based thing. I was kind of involved. It was mostly help desk type stuff, but we also did some things on the more technical side and the configuration side, working with servers. So I was already familiar with a lot of that stuff. The terminology I was able to sit down with like system admins and have a uh, intelligent conversation with them right off the bat. And a lot of um, a lot of the folks that were in my same start class at, at Deloitte couldn't. They were still really trying to learn the uh, uh, technical side to it. And so that's, uh, that's what, that's what got me into it. I, that that's, I started learning that there's this whole area of governance, risk and compliance. And, um, so that was, that was, I I can kind of go in my career from, from there, but that's what, that's what ultimately got me into it. It was a space that I had no idea existed until someone reached out and said, Hey, I think you'd be good for this. So, um, very thankful to have had, uh, that, that opportunity because otherwise I, I have no idea what I, what I would have done for the last 10 years. Now, I think that's like a, a similar start to kind of what I had. And I feel like it's the similar start to a lot of people where they get out of college and the, the consulting firms are always kind of looking for those, uh, like like the tier one resources to kind of get their foot in the door. And GRC is like an interesting space to, to start that. Um, you did mention that you did have that technical background. Did you feel like the majority of the people that you worked with came from the same technical side or was not not so much? Not at all. Okay, now before we go any farther into this section, I don't want anybody to feel alienated. We're not doing any kind of gross gatekeepy thing where we're saying you have to have X technical degree or X technical background to be successful in this space. But at the same time, if you're tasked with doing an assessment of different systems, you got to know what systems you're assessing. You got to know the nuances of them. If I was to go off and do assessments of airline safety systems, it would be reasonable to expect of me that I understood what I was assessing, correct? I think that's a fair critique. So that's all that we're trying to say here. Um, in fact, it was it was <laughs> to think back to look back on it now. It's kind of scary to think about uh, the people who are being asked to do these more technical audits, and you know, kids just straight out of school, and most were clueless. And really, the clients could have put anything in front of them and said, "Hey, this is how it's supposed to be," and they didn't understand enough to to know or question or. Yeah, so that that kind of goes down a whole a whole other topic of like lack lack of experience, but definitely I. I I was somewhat set apart in the fact that like I could actually understand things. Uh, someone could put code in front of me, and I could understand. Like I I, I took a, um, a visual basic class, uh, VB six in, in in high school, and so like I understood the very basics of programming. Someone could put code in front of me and walk me through it, and I could actually understand it. And uh, so I was able to ask very intelligent questions of uh, of clients and kind of try to poke some holes in things and make sure that I understood it and that I was documenting it and that I just wasn't, you know, taking the client's word for, Hey, this is how it's supposed to be. And then I had, saw, I had a lot of colleagues that were just like, okay, that sounds good. And would just write it up, whatever the client said, and they really had no idea what they were looking at. Um, so that was, I guess in some ways good and bad. It made, made me take longer in my work because I actually was like asking proper questions. Whereas I think everybody else was just kind of going through the motions. 
Uh, so there was a little bit of a, of a balance there, but uh, definitely even folks who had come from like management information systems backgrounds, which Tennessee did not have a, a program in that, which is if they did, that's probably what I would have done. Um, even folks with more MIS backgrounds, which should have had the more technical experience. I didn't, I really wasn't seeing a lot of it. It was a lot of folks with mostly accounting backgrounds who were kind of like, Oh, Hey, this sounds somewhat different than the straight up financial statement audit and tax stuff that I've been doing in school. I, I want to explore this. And then they really, they, they could test controls. They understood like how to figure things out and how to evaluate if a control was working, but then they also didn't fully understand the underlying tech. So in some ways, how can you evaluate if controls working if you don't understand the tech? I think that's that's a fair. Yeah, and I think question, we've had a similar experience there. Like I worked with some people where somebody lateraled from like I did whale watching up in Cape Cod, and now I'm doing like GRC, or I was a trombone <laughs> major, and now yeah. I'm doing GRC. So I think um, yep. that working with those types of individuals, being in the GRC space, you having some type of a technical background to kind of help you with those technical questions for uh, for customers. How did that shape your opinion of like what GRC was and kind of what your goals for the future would be? Yeah. I mean, early on, I, I didn't know. I would say it, it took me, uh, I don't know, three to four years into my career before I, I it, actually, when I had left Deloitte and was doing some other stuff, I remember coming across things. And I was like, oh, that's what that meant. And I, and I was like, well, I wish I would have known that when I was like supposed to be doing that as my job. Um, so I think it was, it was kind of like this, this growth thing as, as I got exposed to more, uh, more companies and more ways of, of, of doing things. I think, um, you know, big four, I didn't have, I, I had a, two or three main clients that I spent 75% of my time on. And then I would have some, some smaller clients. And I, I so I, I stayed at Deloitte for about two years. Oh, we just lost power. <laughs> Now, just for some context, the night before, Tennessee had about five tornadoes that came through the state. And then the following day, there were high wind advisories all across the state. Um, Dustin lost power. I didn't realize that it was a full power loss. I thought it was just like, a we lost power. It blipped. We're back on. Um, but you can kind of hear me slowly realize what's going on and trying to figure out if I need to cancel this interview, if I need to reschedule. And then I kind of realized that, hey, this is kind of the reason why I wanted to start this podcast in the first place is these lessons that we have in GRC are really, really practical in pretty much every single aspect of either your professional life or your personal life. So having this happen was weirdly serendipitous. Give me a second. Let me check my internet. No, it was me. We lost power. Oh, you did? Yeah. Uh, just you guys still have on. high winds there? Yeah. It's been super windy here today and it's flickered a couple of times, but it's now just like properly gone out. But I have a UPS on my, on my, uh, I was going to say, router, how are we so, still talking? So here? that's how we're still talking. <laughs> Well, that, um, that adds a little bit of creativity to how we're going to be doing this. So, um, I mean, we, we don't need the, the video. So I, I'm, I'm impressed you got the UPS there. Um, I don't, I don't know how long it'll, how long it'll last. So we'll have to, I was going to say, have you, have you done like disaster recovery testing for this? This is a good segue making. Yes. How have you used GRC in your personal life? Oh man. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, so interestingly enough, I do have, I do have a, a UPS that <laughs> I've had a UPS for a long time, ever since I got exposed to this space. Um, and it's keeping my my modem, and right now it's just plugged into my uh, router and my uh, cable modem. off a laptop battery? Yeah. Now at this point, I start rambling a little bit about prepping. Dustin talks about the Tesla Powerwall. We start talking about the uh, pluses and minuses for whole home generation, whether you're using diesel or natural gas. So I think we can just skip right to the point of the conversation where things start to feel a little bit more structured when we realize we still have content that we can still talk about, and this can still be a salvageable interview. 
I've always kind of had a natural, you know, I, you, the question about applying GRC to like everyday life. I've always been this, like, I tend to ask the question of, okay, well, what's like, what could go wrong here? And so from like the, really the risk management side of, of GRC, I felt like I've always had, I've been pretty decent at that because I could ask that question and, and then turn around and say, okay, well, let's, let's list out what could go wrong. And then of course there's, you know, you start doing the, okay, what's the likelihood, what's the impact, things like that. You're doing effectively a, uh, uh, risk assessment. And so, I mean, I've, I've definitely used that skill set in, in everyday life. I mean, exactly what we're, the whole reason we're still able to be talking right now is because I was like, well, I, I want at least my internet to stay up long enough that like, if something were to happen that for like ring cameras and the ring alarm and all yep. that stuff, like other things there would still be able to maintain a connection to the, to the internet for, and it's going to be interesting how, how long the power is actually out here, because I think this thing's only going to last about 20, 30 minutes. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see how, how that goes. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's literally like doing this evaluation of, okay, what it like in, in the event of a power outage, what do I want to, to keep up? Like what, what are the things I want to keep up? We, where our, our house is, is kind of in a little bit of a, gully i suppose and we we don't get really good cell reception right here at the house and so if we lose internet that kind of like it i would i would about have to leave the house and go somewhere else to be able to have it on my phone so being able to keep internet up and running in the event of a power outage is important to me and so you know then it then it becomes the question okay well how long do i want to keep it up and what type of, what type of ups do i need and then there's the cost evaluation so i mean it, it's there's a ton of parallels to like things that i've done in my grc career when it's like okay like you're having to make all these trade offs about what's the actual risk what what is it we're trying to guard against and then what's the cost of guarding against that and you know where's the where's the happy middle ground there uh, now I'm thinking of like customer calls that we've had and like I even hopped, uh, hopped on one uh, yesterday where some of the expectations for like the type of data, the type of risks, like wanting like the, the disaster recovery that needed to be like just all the bells and whistles. And it's like taking into consideration, like what exactly is it that we're protecting? What cost are you trying to impose on me? And is that cost, am I ever going to see any kind of return on investment or is that ever going to come to fruition? And if it does come to fruition, if we do end up like losing data at a certain point, like what is what is the actual risk of that data loss versus the amount of money and effort and time we're all spending trying to, to protect that. Exactly. Yep. And I mean, I, and I've done that with other things. It's like I've, for years I've been like, I, when I, when I was in high school, I ended up, I, I had a laptop and a hard drive went bad and I lost basically everything that I had because I wasn't, I wasn't doing any backups. And after that happened, I was like, this is never happening to me again. And so I've been using like online backup services for 15 years now or something like that, like way before, a lot of people were using them and having, you know, physical backups and, and, and things that way. And, you know, it, it comes in, then that's, that's changed a lot of stuff's moved to, you know, a lot of cloud-based things where it's like, it's no longer dependent on one, one machine. So I don't necessarily need to have a machine backed up, uh, but it still comes down to this evaluation of, I have to look at, I'm like, okay, what's the real risk here of me actually losing this data versus all the time I'm spending like, okay, I want to have a hard, I need to back this up. I need to back it up on this frequency. I want to, you know, take this hard drive over to someone else's house so that if, you know, it's some separate location in case there's a fire at the house, like, and ultimately I think as, as more things have gone to the cloud, I've kind of, I've really pulled that back. And I'm like the risk, the, 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 the risk is, is high or like the, the impact would be high, but the likelihood of, of so many things like would have to fall into place in order for me to actually lose data. And it's like, it's just not worth some of those additional steps. But I mean, that's exactly the, the, the conversation that, we would have at segment about, okay, like what, and customers would ask about certain sorts of things. And it's like, okay, well, yes, like there is a risk there, but the likelihood's super low. And, you know, we don't think, 
uh, we don't think we're going to need to do something. And I think about, uh, we had a customer, a very large customer that asked us in the fall of 2019, they're like, well, do you have a pandemic plan? And we all just kind of looked at each other and they were like, no, that's ridiculous. Like, Oh, I, I remember those questions plans. Like having to do the auditing. <laughs> do you guys have pandemic plans? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, sure. Whatever. That's never going to happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, we, at, at segment, the biggest, the biggest, the biggest like physical risk, you know, we had was we thought there'd be some, it was, would be an earthquake in San Francisco, right? I mean, that's, that's a legitimate risk. Um, but none of the, the office could get completely pummeled to the ground and it really wouldn't impact customer processing because there wasn't anything that was, that was hosted there. So, you know, that, that informed a lot of, of our risk things. It's, you know, taking a look at, okay, what, what could go wrong? Yes, that would, that would, the situation would be bad, but would it really have that big of an impact on like the core thing that we're trying to, to, to provide here? And so I think that decision-making framework, it has a lot of applications in business in all sorts of different, um, you know, true GRC applications at work, but then, um, applying it in your everyday life. Like it's, there, there's kind of limitless things there and you end up going through that same sort of decision making tree and, and, and framework in a variety of situations. I had a curiosity because I think that's one of those things where when I went from consulting over to like actually being an internal resource doing GRC, um, do you think there is kind of a difference in terms of the, I'm going to call it more academia based GRC and kind of consulting, this is the best practice, but not taking into consideration any of like the cultural aspects of the company. What is the data that you're actually looking at? Because I think the, the conversations that we're having, like they make sense. It's very obvious. And then you kind of hop on the calls with either consultants or other G- GRC resources who have maybe just gone from consulting directly to internal, or they're just kind of operating on like the, the standard traditional way of looking at GRC. And it's almost wanting, we need the best thing for every single one of these controls. It needs to be the, the tippy tippy top of the chain. <laughs> regardless of what resources we need to, to make and yeah. put in front of it. Like that's the only acceptable answer. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely a massive gap between the, the theory and the actual implementation. Um, and I think I, I, I actually meant to look this up before, um, before we talked here, but there's a, there's a video of Steve jobs talking at, um, isn't I think the early nineties talking at MIT's Sloan school of business to some class and he basically said, "Hey, how many of you are, are going into into consulting?" And I ha- you know half the class raised their hand, and he's like, "Well, I feel sorry for you." And he was, and, and I would I would encourage anybody anybody to like go out and actually listen to that because his his point was there's a there's a massive difference between going in and saying as a consultant and saying you need to be doing X Y Z. Okay, here's my fancy PowerPoint that tells you that. Okay, pay us our fee. All right, we're gone, and then actually doing X Y and Z. And that's something to where like you can have all the pretty frameworks and the ideas and, you know, the, the, the picture perfect textbook way of how something should be implemented, but it's never going to be that way in the real world because the real world's not the textbook, right? Like there's, there's other constraints, there's other issues. You've got lack of resources, whether that's people or money or time or whatever. Um, and I think that's, that's very, um, it's tough for people who have never been in the implementation side to understand that. And I think it can make, like, I think consulting is a great way to go straight out of, out of school because you can get a lot of experience in things, but it's, I think the better consultants are the ones who have had time in industry and understand the implement, like the constraints around implementation. And then that's able to inform how they tell clients to do something. Because they now understand it's not just a matter of throwing something on some PowerPoint deck and 
being done with it, right? There's actual other considerations that that go into implementing this thing. And there's trade-offs. Like there's never, there's never a perfect way. You're always gonna, you can have this perfect model, but then you know you're not going to be able to implement a hundred percent of that. So I think especially for young, younger people just straight out of school who've never had any experience, I mean, or in, any experience implementing, they know the textbook way. And that's good. But it also is maybe less than half the story. Like knowing knowing what to do and doing it are are two completely different things. And so uh, that being able to understand how to actually implement something, I think is probably the higher value skill. And that's what, if you, if you could go in and then like as a consultant, if you could be the one that's not just telling people what to do, but actually actually implement it, you're going to get paid a lot more doing that because that's, that's more valuable. Now, how long did you stay in consulting? It, I guess it depends on, well, I was in, uh, I don't know, 11, five years, I guess. Um, I started at Deloitte in 2011 and then I went into industry, you could say in 2016. Okay. Out of curiosity, would you, would you change it? Cause like coming from like my perspective of like seven years doing consulting work and then working with somebody like you and I'm just like, Oh my God, like some of the things that I said on interviews where I really thought I knew stuff <laughs> and I really absolutely didn't like, I feel like the, the seven years while I probably could have learned a lot more if I had transitioned to being an internal resource, almost like the impacts of like me, not only like having that experience and being like, it's, it's been seven years, but like, uh, maturing as a, as an adult, uh, having like the additional yeah. seven years behind me, I think the lessons learned working for like you and Steve at segment have almost like stuck with me a little bit more than they might've, if I had just done consulting for like a year or two and then hopped into the industry, would you change your five years or would you go quicker into uh, an internal resource role? I don't know that I would have gone quicker. I, I, I really, I, I don't, I don't think I would change a lot about it because I, I think, and that's why I would, I, I get the sentiment of what, like referencing the Steve Jobs video. I get that sentiment and I completely agree with it. But at the same time, that's like, that's not to say that consulting has no value um, because one of the, the biggest benefits and, and this, this changed, especially after I, I left Deloitte and I started to mention this right as the, I think the power went out. Um, I, I left Deloitte and was, you know, was doing, I had three big clients at, at Deloitte. It was taking up 75% of my time. And so I was seeing a lot of those three clients and how they did things, but I wasn't getting a massive amount, amount of exposure. I went to Brightline at the time, now Shellman, and I was on a new project every other week. And so, and from large companies to, you know, small startups. And so that just really accelerated my learning because I was in and out of all of these places and seeing how, how companies did things and seeing the good and the bad and, in some cases, they're really, really ugly, and uh, you know, getting getting a feel for what actually worked and what and what didn't. And so, I think that was more valuable. Like that's that's what I wouldn't have changed because it, it really gave me the perspective to understand there's multiple ways to to do things, and it how you do something can vary based on the situation. And there, for some things, there's not necessarily one right way. It all depends on a variety of factors. And so, getting getting that experience, I. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, have traded that because it got me exposure, not only just processes, but tools like different software that, that's used to do different types of things. And, um, you know, that came in handy when in industry, when customers would come asking about, well, do you use XYZ software? And that might, I might not have any idea what that does, but because I had seen another company do it and I knew how it was supposed to be implemented, I, and kind of like the, I could break that down to the core of like, okay, I'm, they're asking about this software, but really what they're asking about is, are we doing this sort of process? 
And so I, it would allow me to be able to say, no, we, we don't, we don't use this piece of software, but we do do this, the same thing that it does. Here's how we accomplish it. And so just having that wide variety of exposure to things, I think was super valuable. And I would, I would definitely encourage if there's anyone that's just starting out to go that same path, but also know that I, I think there's, you, you are worth more in the implement, like the implementer role as opposed to just purely consulting forever. But I think there's a massive amount of value in consulting early on to get exposure to um, a wide variety of things. And a couple of things that that kind of makes me think about. So um, like you mentioned talking to customers, so that's definitely something that when I came over to, to segment, I realized that that was almost a, a major value proposition for having a specific GRC resources, being able to kind of tell that story and be able to communicate to multiple stakeholders. Here's exactly what we're doing. And it's not just this specific control. It's the actual narrative. Um, I think when you came to segment, what were some of like the, uh, the core, like most valuable things that you've, uh, like focused on, like what, what should a GRC person working for an internal company, like focus on first and foremost? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, I, I think in general in GRC, you need to be as close to the product slash sales as possible. And I think that's going to be true for anybody in any in any sort of business because the further removed you are from that, the more likely your role is to get cut in bad times or you know uh, restructuring things like that. Uh, the closer that you can tie your worth to, like how your what your job is and how that's helping to drive sales and helping grow the company. And especially if there's maybe not, sorry, my dog's barking here. Um, if there's not directly, if it's not directly tied to maybe sales, but it's tied to a very important strategic goal of the company, like that's, that's what's important to, um, really align yourself with. And that's something that when I came into segment, um, you know, our, uh, um, uh, Colleen, our CISO, she was very, she was very adamant about us being able to talk about what we did in terms of how it was moving the company forward. And that was a little bit of a change for me because especially coming, I had been at um, uh, McKesson prior to that. And I mean, McKesson's a massive organization and you get a lot of people that are pigeonholed and they think, okay, well, I, I update, I make sure that all of the dates on the policies are updated as they should be and that all the typos are fixed. And my job is very critically important to everything that goes on. And it's like, well, no, it's not. Like <laughs> your job's not actually that, like that job is not that important. And, and then you, you say, okay, well, how, how are you helping move the company forward? It's like, well, they, they, they don't know they can't. And they, and, and it's truly because I think there's <laughs> in, in an instance like that, that's not a, a terribly valuable job. So you have to be able to like tie things into, um, you know, again, strategic goals to sales, to customers, to like the things that actually matter to the business side of the business. And I think that's, that's again, um, a lot of folks who, especially if you come from the consulting side, you never, that's never something you consider. Um, it's not something that is generally evaluated as part of, you know, you, you, you're blowing in, blowing out of these clients. You're not taking a lot of time to un un understand their business. And so if you make that switch from consulting to GRC, you're not used to talking about all of the things that you talk about in terms of the business. And that's super important to be able to make the switch is understand how is, how is what I'm doing actually moving the business forward and not some high level thing like, well, we, we, we help keep the company safe. It's like, okay, well, how like quantify that? Like, you know, at, at segment, we would try to tie things and say, well, we've supported, you know, X million dollars of ARR. Like we've, we have directly helped support either renewals or new sales because of like, we implemented this feature that was being asked by this number of customers. And so therefore we can say that that's helped us drive 
a certain number of uh, revenue. And so that was, and that was really how we, we justified almost everything that the security team did. Not that we would just go around implementing everything that, that the customers asked for. But if, if we saw a, a large number of requests from, uh, or the same type of request from a large number of customers, then we knew that was probably something we should, we should go and build. And that would be important to the business. Uh, not just because we felt like it was something that needed to be done for security, but like we could now directly tie this to a, um, a business outcome. So uh, that was kind of a long, long, long-winded way no, of, no, that was of good. An- answering that question. But I think that's like thinking about your role at, in GRC in terms of the business and how it's moving the business forward is, um, I think something a lot of folks don't realize. And I certainly didn't until I got to segments. I mean, I spent three years at, at McKesson and never really could tell you how, what I was doing was, was moving any of the business units that I worked with forward. And that was, that was a mistake looking back. Cause yeah, I think that was one of the things that I recognize that you guys are doing that I found impressive was actually, it's not proving the negative, like look over the course of like X number of years, we haven't had any kind of breach and therefore we're valuable. Um, doesn't create the, the, like the best business story to like earn budget, get additional headcount, really kind of demonstrate value to uh, the company. And I think the other aspect of moving the business forward, aside from obviously the the business growth and contributing to that in, uh, in some certain way, is creating different products that other teams can actually use to reduce risk. And I think one of the things coming yep. from consulting, going into internal, seeing what Segment was doing, I remember you guys pulled up a, a risk spreadsheet that you were sending out to uh, to different stakeholders. And instead of some like big NIST based thing that's got like a lot of different formulas that you've programmed into a spreadsheet it was literally a, a google doc form that had like skull and crossbone emojis talking about <laughs> what's the impact what's the likelihood of something happening yeah. um can you kind of describe some of the uh the other projects or if you want to describe that particular one just in terms of putting something that's simple that's in place and just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not valuable or complexity doesn't equate to more value to the business yeah yeah I, that's definitely something you know the consultant mindset says okay well they're paying $200 an hour for my time. So therefore I need to, to deliver a product that seems like it's worth paying $200 an hour for. And that that ends up being these overly convoluted things. And I think it makes people feel good. They're like, well, look at this complicated thing that the consultants put together. But if it's never going to be used and if it's a difficult to use and you can't extract like actual value out of it, then was it worth paying for? Probably not. Um, and I think the, the example you gave there is one is, is one of my favorites from, from segment when we, um, you know, I, we were just under kind of a time crunch. We needed, we needed to put out minimum viable product and it's like, okay, we need to do a risk assessment. What's the, what's the easiest way that we can communicate that we can first of all, get this done, but then communicate risk in terms that engineers and other folks who aren't used to dealing with like the, you know, the NIST risk terms and things like that. How can we put that in terms that they understand? And so it was like, okay, like, one to five scroll, skull and crossbones. Like what's, if this thing were to actually come to fruition, what's the risk to the company? Like, is this just a little, yeah, it's kind of an inconvenience or is like the company done? And it was like, it, it was, it was really translating it into terms that, um, that the, I guess the stakeholders are really the subject matter experts, the folks who we really relied upon to accurately gauge these things because they knew where, you know, all the bodies were buried and they knew all the, the, the problems with the systems and, and things like that like putting it into terms where they could very quickly give us a very valuable response. And then we could, we could measure that over time. And that again, I think is you, you get a lot of people that, especially if they've come from a consulting background, they have their frameworks. They, they think, okay, this is how things have to be done. And then they show up in a meeting with one of those subject matter experts and say, okay, we need you to rate this one to five. And it's a bunch of esoteric terms and 
NIST-based terms and things that folks have never understood and they don't take the time to understand it, then you end up with this like mutual frustration because the GRC folks are upset that the engineers don't understand. The engineers are like, why are you wasting my time? And um, it it just doesn't foster good a good relationship there. So being able to like put things into simple terms that others can understand that you can quickly get valuable feedback. Like that's, that's why that exercise was uh, so, so valuable to us. I mean, we ended up doing that, I think over almost two years, I, I guess it was about quarterly. We did that and did it for, for two years. So about eight, eight different iterations. And um, it made, it just made things very easy to um, not only get, get information from the subject matter experts, but then to like communicate that information upward, we could communicate that to the E-team and say, okay, in terms of skull and crossbones, this is like, we think this is a really like we've talked to a lot of people, this is a very serious risk. And like, we, we believe we need to prioritize some resources to, to try to reduce this or do something to, to make this not a four on the skull and cross crossbone scale. Let's see if we can get it down to a, to a two. And so putting it in those terms, it made the executives are like, okay, crap. Like that's, yeah, you, you guys are right. Like we need, we need to do something about this. So, and that was a success story, right? You were able to basically list out, hey, here are our top 10 risks that we've defined based on the, uh, the questionnaire that we sent our engineers. And over time, if I'm not mistaken, you guys were able to knock down like the top three risks and basically replace them with, all right, we mitigated that. Here are our new top three. Yeah, absolutely. And and things would shift. And that was that was one of the fun things. Oh, hey, the power's coming back on. Um, nice. We'll get, we'll get video back here. Oh, I'm, um, I'm, I'm completely keeping all of this in there because this, this really speaks to you out of the core, like what this this uh, podcast is supposed to be about. Uh, if, if we need to go back and re-record some of this Did stuff, you do that intentionally? Can. You could be honest. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Now, uh, team, team me up for that question again. Um, um, yeah, so what was – I'm trying to think of like what the question was. Um, I remember. Um, yeah, we were able to knock down some of the some of the top risks, and then the thing that would happen is we would even see we would see risks that we had previously thought were very important. That the more that time went on, we realized that they weren't. And some of this was just us. Like there had, there really wasn't a formal risk program of this, especially of this caliber, where we could produce valuable results at segment. And so we were we were standing up something from new. And so in some ways we initially in the initial versions of it, we would call out things that we thought were risks. But then as time would go on, we'd realize, you know, those things aren't that important. There's these other things that we hadn't thought about that that's, that's more important. So sometimes things would drop off the list because we just realized we, we have to prioritize 10. And this thing that we previously thought was important is not as important as something else we've, we've since realized or some other new situation that's, that, that, that's come up. So it was very fluid. And I think that's good, right? Like you get people who will do risk assessments and it's just like, Sally, right? Same as last year. It's changed the date. Like, let's, okay, yeah, well, this risk, yeah, it's still, and it's just a bunch of high-level risks that everyone can kind of sit around and say, well, yeah, that's still there, and it's probably still the same. And you look at a risk assessment across like five years, and it's basically identical except for the dates. And like, that's not that's not helping anybody. And so the fact that like this was a very real, like living, breathing document that we were making, like not only security team goal decisions on, but like we, it was informing executive decisions about how, how to focus engineering resources. Um, and that, and that it would change and it would move around. It was, it was, I think that's exactly how this is supposed to be. And yet I've, I don't know that I've ever seen another organization that has done it that way. It's so, so often just ends up being this check the box exercise that GRC does and then they just they just kind of move on, but we had I mean, a very even assessing living, it when I was doing consulting like that was kind of the expectation. Like even if you had like the the same customer, be like, "Yep, I recognize those risks. Yep, it's yep. it's a new year. There you go. We saw that." 
And that was a challenge too, starting to present this to auditors and to customers when they, they almost look at it and they're like, well, this can't be real. Like you're not taking this, you got skull and crossbones here. Like this isn't serious. <laughs> and, and so that, you know, we, we had a bit of a uh, education hurdle in, in, sharing with others outside like no oh, this did you is actually real. share it with it's like we, when i saw it it was one of those where like i was an off put by it i was almost kind of like this makes more sense than somebody trying to bs some type of like monte carlo thing where like yeah they've kind of gone <laughs> and like put numbers to things but those numbers were assigned based on a feeling so now you have like a quantified like qualitative risk yep. that really doesn't provide any kind of value yep and that um like that that to me is one of the big um i think value or it, that was that was the, the big value was that so many people could understand it, but the problem was that the GRC folks and others who were trained, the more classically trained people would see it and they didn't know what to do with it because it did not look like the thing they expected it to look like because everyone's like, oh, I know that this check the box exercise, it's going to be some sort of spreadsheet that's got the fairly standard tabs and the the rows and the columns and you got the risk Just ranking emojis, some sort of calculation. Yeah, and it's like they're seeing this this Google form with emojis in it. And they're like, well, this can't be real. Like, where's your actual risk assessment? Like, I, I can remember we, we, we had a customer ask us that, like, well, can, this is nice, but can we see your, like your, your, your formal risk assessment? And we're like, this is it. <laughs> and so the, the benefit that, that we had there is we were able to, we could map things from here's where this was evaluated, decisions were made, and then we could show that it was informing like business-wide roadmaps for what, what to build. And that's what lent it a lot of credibility. But unfortunately, because it didn't look like the thing that so many people expected it to look like, they, they literally wouldn't believe that it was real or it was the right thing until we showed, no, like it's, it's, it's like the E-team is making decisions based on this, this document and this process. Yeah. And actually thinking about like, mental hurdles and working with other stakeholders in terms that they can understand. I think we can do the uh, the flip side of that is you working with stakeholders to put the control that you want to put in place, kind of getting them to define well, what it is that you would do. Have you ever had any kind of control that you've had to work with stakeholders, not just to enforce this is what I think we need to be doing with respect to this particular control, but really getting their feedback to help you design it? Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, the, our, our change control process was probably the biggest, uh, the biggest example. We, we we had plenty, and there was certainly plenty with trying to talk through customers where they would, they would want to know, well, where's your control around this? And we would have to say, well, we don't do that, but we address this risk, the underlying risk. Like the you're, you're, they were equating control and risk, and we're saying, well, if you don't have this control, then the risk isn't addressed. And it's like well, that's not how it works. Like we're we're going a level below the control and saying what's the risk, and we're addressing the risk in some other way. So there was a lot of like things that we would do non-standard that would, we'd, we'd have to ed educate on. Uh, but to your question about like involving stakeholders in some of the, the um, creation of, if I understood the question correctly, like involving internal stakeholders in the creation of, of controls. Um, Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So change control, change control would be the best, the best example of that. So when we, uh, when we started through the process to get um, our first SOC two, uh, we really, um, we, uh, I was, that was basically my very first thing when I joined, joined the company, I joined in mid August and we basically, within a couple of weeks, we basically said, okay, by the end of the year, we're going to have a SOC two type one. I'm like, all right, that's uh, that's aggressive. And so we got to work on it. And thankfully, because we had the previous GRC uh, team had already established um, ISO 27,001, 27,002, we had, um, we, we we had a baseline of, of controls. And so there were some things that were already established, but, you know, going from ISO to SOC 2, and then especially thinking forward to a SOC 2 type 2 is that's, there's, there's a lot more rigor there. 
And so one of the things that initially jumped out at us was, okay, the change control process was good enough to have passed an ISO audit. It's not good enough to pass a SOC 2 type 2 in, in, in any way. We need a lot more formalization here. And we knew that that was going to create some headaches among engineers because it was going to add friction to the, to the development process. And segment was at the time was still very, very uh, of the startup mindset. It was, we need to move quickly. We don't need to be putting up barriers to, to shipping. Like we got to ship, iterate, like let's, let's go. And so knowing that that was going to slow that down, you know, we needed to make some um, uh, decisions about how we, um, like how, how we designed this control. And we did it in a way that, address what we needed to from a SOC 2 standpoint, but then it also, um, it would it would not hinder um, engineering as much as we were afraid that it might. And so we sat down with some engineering managers, some of the uh, engine directors and said, look guys, this is the situation we're in. SOC 2 is a, uh, you know, an enterprise level um, goal now. Like we've, the E-team has said we need to do this because we're, it's coming up a lot more in sales conversations. Like we've, the, the fact that we don't have this is causing us to lose sales. And so that's, that was really the, the impetus that the E-team needed to say, okay, well, we need to go get this thing. And so knowing that, okay, everyone was aligned that we need to get SOC 2. It's like, okay, how do, like, here's this gap and here's the thing that we're trying to accomplish. How do we do this in the, in the best way possible? And of course we could have come in as the GRC team and said, well, here's what we're going to do because this is what we think is best. And, and we need to implement this, 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 and this, but instead we, we basically posed the problem to our uh, engineering directors and, and managers and said, here's, here's the core issue we're trying to solve. How would you go about solving this? And what's the best way in the, like the least amount of friction, what's the best way to, to, to do this. And then we had them design the controls and basically put the processes in place Sorry, there's a massive tree that just went down across the street. It's been leaning all day long, and it just uh, it just blew over onto a duplex. Uh, so clearly, we were dealing with a lot of distractions this day uh, due to the weather. But um, don't worry, we're going to make the episode work. And the show notes, oh, they're going to be chef's kiss. You're going to want to check those out at the end of this. So getting right back into the interview here, Dustin did a fantastic job of remembering where he left off and continuing his thought. <laughs> We, we might seriously have to re-record this entire episode so that you've got like actually going to be a really good episode. Here. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, so our, our key here was for, for change control was having the stakeholders who were actually going to have to like do the control design it and, and, and implement it. And of course with, with our oversight, right? Like we weren't just saying, okay, go do this and whatever you do is fine. Like we, it was, it was very much a partnership, but it was them. Like we said, here are the, the core baseline things that we need to be able to show in an audit, how would you go about doing that? And, and then, out of curiosity, you, don't don't mean yep. to interrupt your thought process there, but just telling like engineers, hey, we need to do this for an audit. That's not really like a, a great way. I feel like that really fosters that buy-in. Did you like have any kind of other communication that you gave them to like really get them to take ownership of developing this? Yeah, so that was where it was. It was important for us to have. Um, the that so, so the SOC two was the driver of, of all of this, and it by this point had been established as an enterprise like business level objective. Um, so the company had like we had we had looked we were starting to lose some sales because very security conscious customers. I mean, it, it was the, the, the SOC two report was table stakes for them, and when our sales folks said like when they asked, "Hey, can we have your SOC two report?" and said, "Well, we don't have one. We don't really have a timeline for when, when we're going to have one." They're like, "We we can't do business with you." And so when you start losing sales, that starts getting the attention of um, the the higher ups. And and so at that point, 
we, we decided kind of in the fall of uh, 2019, the E-team said, hey, this we've, we've got to do this. We're losing sales. We need, we need SOC 2. And so that was really like the high level alignment that was, that was needed for us to move forward. And so it wasn't us going in saying this thing has to be done. Like the whole company was agreed that SOC 2 is important to the future of, of this company. Like we want to, we want to continue to grow scale, um, you know, really increase our, our, our sales. And so this is the thing that, that, that has to happen. So there was kind of like, Everyone in the company, Vanity had been talked about at company, all hands, at engineering, all hands. So when we came around talking about SOC 2, everybody already knew what it was. I had been in front of, okay. I don't think I was in front of the whole company, uh, but I had been in front of, of all of engineering talking about it, saying, hey, you're going to hear a lot more about this. This is what it is. This is what it means. This is why it's important. This is why the E-team has decided that this is an uh, important objective. So we weren't coming in cold to these conversations. They already knew, like everyone's sitting down, and especially it, the it, it, we, we weren't talking at this point to uh, ICs. It was mostly to eng managers and, and directors. And so they were more accommodating to, okay, yes, we understand. Like this is kind of a, yeah, it's going to add some friction to our process, but hey, we've we've got to do it. Um, so that was, that kind of, w- there was all of that context that existed by the time we sat down to actually have that conversation. And okay. which made it like, again, we weren't coming in saying, you have to do this because we in the GRC team say it's important and you've got to do it. Like there's no way that would have in, in segments culture, if we had done that, they just would have been like, we got too much to do, like go away. <laughs> so, so we, we, I think having that, that enterprise buy-in was, I mean, it was, it was critical because like I said, it was, it was the context. It was the air that surrounded all of these conversations. Like everyone knew that this was a important thing. And so we needed to work to do it. And to be quite honest with you, we had some uh, IC engineers who um, who ended up leaving the company because, like, change control was kind of, kind of the thing that pushed them over the edge. They're like, "If I'm gonna have to deal with this, I don't want to work here." And they were more suited to very early stage, move fast. They don't want to have to deal with a lot. And I, I get that mentality. And so it kind of naturally forced some folks who they're like, "If you know, we've we, we've we've grown by the for having to do this change control stuff, we've grown too big for me. I'm ready to move on." And so some people left actually because because they just didn't want to deal with it, and nothing nothing wrong with that at all. Um, so it's it was um, it was it, I think that conversation was uh, was eye opening for me in how and then watching watching some other folks who like were truly like they proposed a solution and proposed using tools and things like we didn't know that existed and using some like functionality and GitHub to do some things and I'm like I didn't even know that was an option. And then, you know, we, we had the benefit of being a very engineering first organization. And so they're like, well, this sort of functionality here doesn't necessarily exist today, but we can build a tool to, to help with this. And, we, and Segment at the time had a very good, I don't know if they still do, but had a very good tooling team uh, that was focused on uh, developing tooling specifically for engineering to help, you know, move faster, to, de- 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 deploy faster, to automate a lot of things. And so they said, yeah, you know, we can, we can build some of this stuff. We can build it into the processes. We can build some reporting. And so there was a, that the, the engineering culture helped there too, that for some things that we kind of came up with a bespoke solution or a bespoke idea for how to, how to implement this within segments environment. And then we weren't having to say, well, we've got to use this tool to do it. It was like, well, we kind of need this process. We know this tool can do one part of it. We can build another part of it and we can kind of string everything together to, to, to meet the core requirements, which end of the day is all I care about. Like as long as I've got for me to have to sit in front of the auditor and explain all this, as long as we've got the, the story 
and the documentation will line up with the story, that's all I need. It, it doesn't matter that it doesn't look like what a lot of other organizations would have would have done. I was going to say, speaking of not looking like what other organizations are doing, when I came in, when you were describing it, I could have had the the similar approach of like, I'm, I'm not used to whatever we're doing here. Um, how is the process of socializing that with people coming from that kind of traditional GRC space where the, the only solution that they have in mind is we're going to put a bottleneck right here and that's, yeah. that's going to stop everything. It's going to basically bring things to a halt. Like how is getting people to kind of wrap their heads around that? Yeah, it wasn't so much internally. Um, I, I think more of those conversations happened with customers usually when they're like, "Okay, well, tell me about your sales process and talk about your change your change advisory board, and uh, you know how often who who who's responsible for approving changes and all this stuff." And it's like, well, you know, our our, our developers can actually implement changes themselves. And I learned very early on to not. Like to 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 tackle that directly head on and say, well, hey, look, here's here, here's our process. We're you know small, nimble company. Our our engineers deploy their own changes. However, we have systems in place that are designed that if they were to do that and there wasn't approval by someone else, it's going to get flagged to a whole bunch of people. And so, yes, like it technically can happen. They could do it without someone, but if they don't follow our, our established processes they're going to get flagged for it. And then we've got some follow-up processes to kind of add a little bit of level of, of shame. You don't want to end up on the report that shows that you had a lot of change control violations and you weren't going back and, and fixing them. So I learned as far as communicating it to not like shy away from that fact, but to tackle it head on and say, this is how we do it. This is why we do it. And what you really care about is not that we have a change advisory board, but that like change someone's just not putting stuff into production without anybody else seeing it. Like that's ultimately the, the objective of change control, right? Like, you don't want one that's the office space scenario. You don't want one person deploying changes and then they're, you know, siphoning off fractions of a cent or something. So like as long as we could prove that that wasn't happening or that it, if, if it did happen, it would be flagged and then followed up on everybody was fine. And it would take some more conversation with some customers than others to kind of get them comfortable with that. But at the, at the end of the day, so many things that not just change control, but where we, if we didn't do it the way that the GRC textbook says it's supposed to be done, the conversation revolved around, okay, let's pull back from the control. What's the risk we're trying to address? And then I would get alignment on, are we all agreed? Like this is the core, like regardless of the control, this is the core risk you're asking about. Okay. We're in, we're in agreement. Yes. Here's how we address that risk. And so being able to, to take that approach to it, um, I enjoyed it to be quite honest with you. Like to, to, I enjoyed being able to show how we did things because I think we did things very, very well. And um, I was it, the fact that we, the fact that we did things well, we had a really good security culture that just made my job to have either talking to auditors or customers. It made my job a lot easier because I could, I could talk about things like it was, it wasn't like I was trying to hide stuff. It's just, I would have to explain it, get folks used to, this is not going to look like what you expect to, what you expect it to look like. It's going to look like this, but we're still addressing the core risk. Now out of curiosity, because I think that was one of the things that, um, again, there's just a lot that segment did that I wasn't quite used to doing like the, the traditional GRC space and kind of seeing almost uh, a part of your role was to cheerlead for the organization. Do you think like the team knowing that you were out there basically telling customers, hey, like we are excelling at the things that we're doing when it comes to security. And that's one of the reasons why you should use us. Do you think that kind of built rapport with the people you were working with? I like to think so. Yeah. I mean, um, I think people could, I, I had a genuine enthusiasm to jump on customer calls and talk about this stuff. And I think that kind of like, that would come through, you know, we, I tried to be transparent, you know, we would, there's a balance between, you don't want to air all your dirty laundry, but you also want to be 
you know, transparent and, and, and build trust. And I think we would, we would do that. I think we were able to strike a very good balance at saying, um, you know, here's maybe a thing that we don't do well and be very upfront about that. But here's the steps we're taking to address it. Like it's been, it's shown up on the risk assessment. We know it's a thing. We know it's an area that we need to work on. It's on the security goals for this quarter. So being upfront about some of that stuff, even if it wasn't like what exactly what the customer was was working for, simply because we showed that we cared, we had a plan, like we we recognized it, we weren't just trying to sweep it under the rug, that built a lot of trust. And it would show that we had, even though we were a, a very small security team, that we were taking care of the things that actually need to be taken care of. Yeah, now definitely we've covered a whole bunch of different projects that you've worked on uh, and all the stuff that you're able to accomplish. Um, I want to focus a little bit on the size of the team. Like You just described a whole bunch of different stuff that your team was able to do. You were one of a two-person team. Can you kind of describe what are some of the things that you put in place to allow your team to scale as the business grew? Because I think you and I have both seen um, like larger companies where you have entire groups of GRC people. They're all split out in their pillars. But at the same time, you and the other resource you were working with, you were able to do all of those things that those other teams are doing but in an efficient enough way where you didn't need to scale at the same rate as the business in terms yeah. of people at least. Yeah, absolutely. Um, automation was huge, uh, making use of um, written documents and, 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 and things like that. I mean, we, that was something that we realized very, very early on was a constraint actually to kind of tell a little, little bit of a, of a backstory on that. Um, when Steve, who was our director of uh, GRC, when he joined uh, the previous director of GRC had been exited and there was one person left on the, or actually there were two people on the team at that time. And so he had a, he had a, a team of two and within about two weeks of him joining, both of them left. And so for a period of time until I, like about a month and a half until I joined, he was a one man GRC show running everything. And so, you know, I, like I was able to help. Hurt to think about. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and all the stuff I know that he was doing and of course being new being new to the role, new to the company, like still trying to like learn everything while the segment's not a simple product. No, it's not. And then having to have those customer conversations and then no joke, my second week of work was our ISO surveillance audit that year or was a, yeah, it was a uh, sur surveillance audit. And so <laughs> that was, and I sat in the meetings and everything and it was like, uh, okay, but that, that was very good for me because I got to hear and I, I got to hear folks talk about the product and the controls and some of the things that were already in place. And I got to meet a lot of our stakeholders. So it ended up being a very good introduction to the company for me. Um, but at the same time, there was, there was way more work than we had people to, to do it. And so I think it, it was a combination of, of us for one being reasonable about what we could do. Um, and we had a lot of support from executives around that. And we were able to kind of establish a revenue cutoff and say, look, if you're a customer coming in, you're paying us, you know, $25,000 a year. That's relatively small for us. You're asking for an audit every year. We can't do that. Like we, we just don't have the team to, to do it. And so the fact that we were able to sort of take that stance and be able to, to draw some lines and say, look, if, if you don't meet these thresholds, like we can, we will support you, but only so much. And you know, we wish we could support everyone exactly the same and be able to roll out the red carpet for everybody that wanted to, to come in and see it, but we simply don't have the resources for it. And most folks were understanding of that. And it also helped that when push came to shove in a lot of conversations, we had executive backing for that. They would, they would go to bat for us. And it wasn't just something that, well, uh, it was for a customer, so we got to do it. No, they would, they would say, look, we can't support everybody equally. And so being able to have that was one way of, of kind of regulating the um, amount of work that, that we had. So we weren't just completely inundated with every single thing that, that, that came in. Um, we tried to have a very, I think we did have a very good um, self-service security page. Our, uh, our 
the segment.com slash security was very robust, gave a lot of information. We had a white paper that, that detailed more things and that was able to answer a lot of questions. And so having that sort of self-service portion that for some very basic security questions, we could point customers to. And then we, we even trained the sales or, uh, 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 go to market team. We trained them, Hey, go like when someone's asking about this point them here first. And so that was like, we would have some of these resources that were, that were publicly available. And then the second step was to not have sales asking, like just forwarding every single security request to us. We equip sales to be able to answer a lot of those questions. And so, and that was through a variety of processes. We would have uh, some uh, wiki pages from just kind of a Slack channel that we shared where we would say, hey, if they ask about this, say this. Then we also had a tool that had a lot of the common security questions and had like we had written the answers for them. And so that helped for sales. If there was one-off questions or if they got a questionnaire, they could take the first pass at it. It didn't even make it to us because we we knew all the common questions that were asked. There's you know, a lot of the common uh, third-party vendor questionnaire frameworks we could we could go through and provide uh, the standard answers for that. And for most customers, that was sufficient. But then we weren't doing the work. We sales was empowered to be able to answer all of those questions without forwarding to 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 us. And so then finally, so a lot of the stuff that we would end up working on, in addition to just maintaining those resources, we would end up on the very um, complicated high value, high touch, the ones that really needed the, you know, the white glove handholding experience, those customers, those were the ones where we ended up spending most of our time working with. So if they had some either really complicated technical questions, we would end up answering those. Or if they were just, again, the very, uh, you know, top dollar uh, customers who we, we wanted to make sure had the highest level of, of care, we would, we would handle those personally. So it was sort of that like layered stack of making sure that like we had the ability to answer the common questions, like it was kind of like the uh, 80-20 rule, right? Like 80% of the things, 80% of the questions customers would ask, like we we knew could be answered by standardized resources. And then we empowered others to provide those answers. But then, and then that last 20% was where our real value add was getting on the phone, walking through things, making sure that there was a deep level of understanding from the customer and that they had all of their um, con- concerns addressed. So it was, it was really that like tiered, framework is how we approached it and how we were able to continue to scale. Uh, I mean, I think our sales, I think by the, by the time you joined the team, our sales team was probably double what it was by the time I joined. And yet we were still supporting effectively that we were using the same processes to support the customers. So we had way more. And again, again, it's, it's that, uh, 80, 20 rule, 80% of those requests were able to be the, either the self-serve or the, or the things that, uh, uh go, go to market could answer. So long, long-winded way of answering that question, but um, we, we provided, it wasn't just us saying we're going to handle everything. Like we provided resources to allow others to, to, to handle it. And in most instances, that was sufficient. Now you just basically went through a whole bunch of different teams that you were working <laughs> with. And even some of the, the uh, previous answers, like there's definitely a collaboration between GRC and the other stakeholders, which I think that's the way it should be. Um, and all of those different things that you're doing and working with those different teams and those different resources, um, is there anybody in particular that stood out to you or a process or a project that somebody was working on that reduced risk for the company that you think needs to be highlighted? Wow. Um, we had some, especially going through the SOC 2, we had some real champions in HR. Uh, who who partnered with? They had never dealt with kind of the level of audit requests that were being asked for uh, that that we needed for the SOC two, especially the SOC two type two. And again, because it was an enterprise um, 
objective and we had built some good relationships there. So they, they knew it was important. Plus we made sure that we had good working relationships with them for other questions. And so they were willing to you know help us and do, do, do what was needed. Uh, HR was always a huge champion because, you know, employee lists and background checks and uh, training and things like that, they end up having to supply a lot of data um, because almost all of that ends up being in, in, in a type two, it's a sample based control. So you're looking at, you know, maybe 25 pieces of evidence for each one of those uh, controls. So the HR always ends up having a pretty heavy load. And we had some really, really awesome folks who would always help us out and would, um, you know, we, we made sure they knew ahead of time, Hey, the audit's going to be happening. Then here's when we're expecting, we're going to have some requests. If you can just, you know, make some time for us here. And they were always happy to do it. And that was, uh, that made my life easier because I wasn't spending a ton of time trying to track down these HR requests that were relatively simple, but you always in these audits always seem to be the things that you have issues tracking down either because they don't provide the right screenshots or something like that. And so that, you know, we would, we did some, maybe some more handholding with them initially just to, I would sit on a zoom and say, Hey, when you're pulling this, this is what we need. So I made sure right off the bat, uh, we weren't going to have to go back and, and ask for stuff twice because that's, that's frustrating for every, every party. So I would take time on the front end to make sure they knew. And then they were the rock stars that they were and got us everything that we needed. Um, the first time. Now, in all the things that we've discussed today, is there maybe like a top three things that when GRC resources go back to work on Monday, they really need to be thinking about like, what can I implement today to make my GRC program more efficient or more effective, or just even just building that better relationship with the stakeholders? Yeah, the stakeholder relationships are huge. I, I keep coming back and I've, I've thought about this a lot since I've left Twilio, um, was just the, being able to communicate the value of the program and the value of the specific roles within GRC in terms of the business. And I know we talked about this earlier. That's that to me is, is one of the biggest differentiators between folks who end up being successful and they get the, they get the resources that they need. And there's just a very collaborative feel versus those who then end up frustrated because, well, no one wants to have asked for this person to review this policy five times and they just won't make the time for it. Um, if you can't quantify why that's an important thing to do, then why should someone else do it? Like, why is it, it, uh, beneficial for them? And as I've gotten more exposed to um, being in kind of a, a sales role ish in my in my current venture, um, and have, have 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 taken some sales training, I've got um, one one of my mentors in that space. He he opens up his uh, he runs a, a sales seminar every year. Opens it up. First line is it's never ever 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 about you. It's always about the other person. And I think that applies not just in sales, but it applies in in. GRC situation, especially with your, with your, when you're working with other stakeholders, like it's not about what you want to get done. Like you've got to make sure that it's, they, uh, the other person understands why this thing is important and why it matters to them, not to you. No one cares that you've got some objective that needs to get done or that there's this risk assessment that's out there. If you don't put it in, in terms of why it matters to the other person, they're not going to give the uh, t- time of day to it. You're going to end up running around trying to get it done. And maybe at the very end, because you have to go to their manager, they make them do it. Like, And that just tears relationships down. So the more that you can put things into why something is important to other people, the, the more successful you are in basically anything. That's sales 101. Um, so I would, I would highly encourage folks to, to not get focused in this view of what I'm doing is so important. Therefore, everyone else must recognize its importance and must do what I say, because that's what the GRC textbook said to do, and they need to understand it. So they've got to go do it. No, they, they need to understand why it's important to them. And so often in a business context, if you can put that in 
how this thing relates to moving the business forward, everyone's like, okay, well, I, I, I get that. Yes. I want my, if you're at a startup, I want my stock options to become worth something. So yes, I, I get why this is a thing we need to be doing. After Dustin gave that GRC pro tip, I took a look at the time and trying to be cognizant of the length of these episodes, I was like, all right, we need to wrap this up. But in doing so, I almost unceremoniously ended the episode without giving Dustin the opportunity to tell us what he's currently working on or how you all will be able to connect with Dustin if you have any questions about GRC in the future. So let's give Dustin a proper GRC podcast closing. So obviously throughout the show, we've alluded to the fact that you are no longer in the GRC space, um, but you are still using GRC principles, I'm assuming, as you transition into your new role. Can you just kind of tell us a little bit, what are you working on now? And is there any kind of tie-in that you, uh, you've noticed between what you used to do and what you currently do or principles that you might take going forward? Yeah, yeah. So um, while I was working in security and uh, GRC, had started uh, investing in uh, real estate on the side. And so that kind of grew into a, m- more of a, a thing I realized I really, really enjoyed. And so the timing was right back in July of last year, July of uh, 22, for me to leave Twilio and, and focus full time on building a, a, a real estate investing company. So I, I run uh, Big Spring Capital. You can check us out at bigspringcap.com. Big Spring, singular, not springs. Um, but we focus on uh, mainly uh, commercial real estate. So uh, had, it had a uh, strong initial focus in uh, apartment buildings, but mainly things that will cash flow. And so we do the uh, syndication model. And so it's basically, I, I partner with some other folks to find deals. And then we partner with investors who are looking to invest in those deals. So we get a group of investors. Everybody comes together uh, to invest in that deal. And then we all share in the uh, cash flow and the uh, profit at, at sale. Um, apartments is kind of where, where that started working on a few different things now, but all sort of that, that same, they're either real directly real estate or real estate adjacent. Uh, so maybe some things around debt and, and mortgages, uh, but all I, I try to give my investors, uh, cash flow. That's, that's my, that's my primary objective is looking for things that, that cash flow. I think it's very important to have passive cash flow. It's one of the quickest ways to, uh, you know, exit the rat race, exit the rat race. I say that, uh, clearly there, the more, uh, the more you can, the more passive cash flow you've gotten, the more options you have, even if you, even if you love your job. Um, you never know. We're going through a bit of a tumultuous environment right now. People getting laid off. Um, so even if you love what you do, that could come to an end or a situation could change like happened with me at uh, McKesson where we had wonderful environment and then leadership changed and then it became very, very terrible and not a place that I wanted to be. So um, I always recommend for folks to kind of build those, build, build that optionality. Even if you want to keep working your job, it's still great to, you know, be, be able to know that if you needed to leave or had to leave, had a health issue, something like that, that there's uh, something there. So that's what I hope people uh, do is and do that through real estate. I think it's one of the best vehicles for wealth building and wealth creation that's ever existed. And we've got a fantastic opportunity to do it here in the U S and, uh, so run that business. And yeah, that's, uh, as far as like, I guess the second part is, you know, how GRC topics re- related to that certainly a lot of risk management when, uh, in my role, we're investing with, you know, other people's money. I want to treat that way better than I treat my own money. And so it's, it's a lot of the same things we talked about earlier using uh, especially risk management frameworks and saying, okay, we have a deal. What could go wrong? What's the likelihood of that thing going wrong? What's the impact if it does go wrong? Um, and that leads to, to, um, you know, different, um, investment decisions. There might be things that, that we perceive to be riskier, uh, and the returns not there. And so it's not something I want to bring to my investors. If I feel like it's not going to, you know, protect their capital first and foremost, and then provide cash flow second. So if there's, uh, it's really going through again, that same like risk, risk ranking framework and saying, what's, what, what could happen here? And let's make sure that we're, 
uh, doing everything we can to uh, mitigate that to a, a reasonable level, or if we've mitigated it, but this is, we're going to acknowledge this is a riskier investment, but the returns higher. And so everyone kind of goes into it, um, you know, eyes wide open, knowing exactly uh, what they're, what they're getting into, but that's, that's far and away the, uh, the most common application of, especially uh, risk, risk management, uh, in, in deals that I look at and the things that I'm doing now. And I think even on the flip side, as we kind of mentioned, GRC controls that don't look like, quote unquote, like what you would expect. I think some of the things that we've talked about, like hedging, like just because you have a great like nine to five, you work in tech, like we're going through one of those tumultuous periods where I was like, I have to admit, part of me was just like, nah, this will always be great. Like the cash will always be awesome. Like the RSUs are going to be like flowing in. And it's like, nope, nope. All that can end at a certain point. And being able to have those alternative opportunities going to create that growth and look out for your family. I think it was one of the first major things where I was like, I might need to take a, a different look at uh, um, investments. For sure. And that's something that a lot of folks, especially if you've been in tech for the last you know, decade, you've never seen an environment like this. Like this is, this is completely new. And I think a lot of folks, if that's what you came into and it's all you've known for the, for the last 10 years, um, you just thought everything was going to be, you know, continually up into the right and was that this is just how, how things go, but it's, but it's not, I think a lot of folks are, uh, I like to, I like to say often that job, job security is a myth. I, I really don't believe in something in, in, in job security. I think it's, it's not there. And folks who say that they do, uh, or say that they have security, I think are just, are just fooling themselves. If you're working for someone else and, and they, the, this other entity controls whether or not you are employed and you continue to receive a paycheck, you don't have job security. And at, uh, again, that's been a little bit of a tough argument in the last 10 years when there's been money flowing around everywhere and you had cheap debt and everyone's growing and hiring and all of that. And I think we've started to see in the last year that that's, it's, it's not always that way. And so you have to be prepared, even folks who are in roles that with very strong, the, you know, bluest of the blue chip tech companies that thought that, you know, there would never be layoffs are now experiencing round after round of them. And, uh, it's a tough, it's a tough spot to be in. It's a tough, tough thing to, to realize, but, uh, if you do the right things and sort of set up ahead of time, you can you can uh, pr- protect against that. Even if you don't want to leave and go do something completely different, like me to you know transition to uh, uh, r- real estate, even just setting up those uh, separate cash flow streams uh, can provide that that buffer to either give you optionality and ride some things out, or um, again, if you know, what, whatever environment it, it, health changes, that's another one that I like to talk about. You never know when something might happen with with your own health and. Um, especially for folks who end up doing their own thing and they end up in this sort of solopreneur kind of, um, uh, mindset. They don't, they don't realize that if something happened to them, then their income's gone. And so having uncorrelated thing, like things that, that owning assets, they're going to pay you regardless of whether you do work or not is just the best. It's the best security you can have because it doesn't matter. You get sick, you decide you want to go to the beach for a month. It, it doesn't matter. The money's going to keep coming in. It's the, it's, it's, it's the best place to invest. So obviously you've made an impact on me in terms of the the GRC principles personally and professionally. So if other people wanted to get in contact with you just for questions, comments, either about GRC or uh, getting the uh, the additional cash flows for personal governance, risk and compliance management, if you, uh, if you will, um, how can people get in contact with you? Yeah. Uh, easiest way would be Twitter. I'm, I'm uh, pretty active there. Uh, my handle is the Dustin Bailey. So you can find me there. And I think I mentioned there, I've got links on, on, on my Twitter to kind of everywhere else that I am. If, uh, Got a link to um, a Calendly. If anybody wants to set up a call and talk, talk about investing, talk about GRC things, I'd still be happy to kind of share some you know experience, things that I, that I did there. Folks are looking for that. So uh, Twitter is the best place, uh, the Dustin Bailey, and um, we can connect. Follow me there. Connect on um, some of the. I've got links to my LinkedIn and my website and everything there. 
And all this information is going to be on the GRCpodcast.com in the show notes. So that's how our listeners will be able to find this. So Dustin, thank you for coming back to the GRC space and having this conversation with me and sharing all the knowledge uh, and your growth throughout your career. Absolutely, Mark. Appreciate you having me.